eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. Can you imagine living in 13 houses and five countries by the time you were nine years old? Even that seems excessive for members of the military. You might think it's unusual, but you don't question it too much as a child growing up like that because, well, that's all you've ever known. But when the authorities show up at your house and you find out your family has been living a lie and your name isn't even your own, you know something isn't quite right. Our guest today writes about the experience of living life on the run and her drug smuggling dad's attempts to stay one step ahead of the law. Tyler Weatherall, thank you so much for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thank you for having me. The book is called No Way Home, a memoir of life on the run. Tyler is a journalist and author uh, living in New York. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, Vice, The Times, The Telegraph, Condé Nast Traveler, Electric Literature, The Irish Independent, many other publications. Tyler's short fiction has been included in things like The Gettysburg Review and Brooklyn Volume 1, and she works as deputy editor for literary journal The Wrong Quarterly. She's also a teacher with creative writing and journalism at Manhattanville College. No Way Home is her debut book. Check out the website tylerweatherall.com. That's spelled T-Y-L-E-R, Tyler, like it's normally spelled. The last name, W-E-T-H-E-R-A-L-L. Well, choosing the life of a journalist and writer feels kind of like the exact opposite of growing up trying to avoid the authorities and live a a life in secret, Tyler. So why do you think you were drawn (laughs) to this path of living so far out in the open? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think I always wanted to be a writer, first and foremost. Uh, Writing was a way that I found I could understand what was happening in my life. I've kept diaries uh, since I was seven years old, and it felt like journalism was a way that I could be a writer professionally. I just wanted to write for a living, and... um, in fact, it, it kind of lines up because I ended up being a travel journalist. And so there was I landing in different places around the world and trying to get to grips with them very quickly. And actually, that's something that I learned to do growing up. So in some ways, the skills that I, I found uh, from my nomadic childhood actually paid off in my future career. Well, No Way Home started out as your father's story. He wrote a massive autobiography during his five-plus years in prison. So tell us about his version of the life that you lived, rubbing elbows with celebrities like the Beatles and Bob Marley. In his version of events, we all come up with a life story that is how we um, choose to perceive ourselves and the way we want to be perceived by the world around us. And it's very important to everyone to have that story. And... um, his autobiography is an incredible piece of writing. It's huge. He wrote it on a, a typewriter in prison. So there's no editing. There's no chapters. He just tried to get it all down on the page. And he has an amazing memory. And, and he's an incredible storyteller. I, uh, I definitely you know, remember when I was younger enjoying the stories he would tell us. And in this piece of writing, he's just, you know, he remembers the, the price of a pound of Colombian gold in 1979. And then he remembers <laughs> the details of like, uh, a smuggle that he did in 1983. It's it's really very impressive, um, and yeah, for for him it was this this extraordinary adventure that he went on. I mean, most of us we live quite quotidian lives, and we make decisions based on what uh, is normal and safe. And and for him to live this life 
he made extraordinary decisions, decisions that seem unimaginable to most of us. And so in his version of events, it's this grand adventure. Um, and that is what it was as well. But then for me, um, I needed to tell it from my perspective. I needed to hear that story from the daughter's angle. Um, and, I, you know, I, I felt like we have heard a lot of these uh, stories, these grand misadventures of the of uh, kingpins, and yet we haven't really heard about the people who are impacted by that, the women and children who are often sidelined to you know, a sentimental subplot. And I wanted to tell that story. Well, the- so soon after writing it, it became... Um, uh, my, from my point of view. Well, the two of you really wanted to eventually turn his book into a movie, and your dad needed a, a ghostwriter to help with that process and get his book published, but you felt really strongly that you didn't want anyone else to do it but you. Why was that, Tyler? Throughout his time in prison, he and I wrote to each other all the time. And uh, he, as he was working on this manuscript, he would be sending chapters. And in fact, much of what I learned about what he had done was through these letters and through these chapters he sent me. And we would say even then, you know, he was in prison from when I was 12 until I was 18 or 19. And we would say one day we're going to turn this into a film together. And it, it felt like something good could come of all of this. So when he found a ghostwriter, he wanted to find a ghostwriter. Um, and I was working as a journalist in London at the time. And I just felt like, it was our story to tell. And here I was as a writer, having trained as a writer, having always wanted to write a book and to be a novelist. And this seemed like it had to be me. <laughs> it couldn't be someone. It was unimaginable that it could be somebody else. Um, and to get the heart of it, because it would be easy to see this story in terms of this grand, this you know, crime narrative. And actually it's a story, as much a story about family and about uh, a family going through incredibly difficult time and trying to do the best by each other and trying to stay together and trying to work it out. Uh, It's a story about growing up and what it means to see your parents as mistake-making people and love them all the same. And all these elements that were so important to us, I felt might be lost in the hands of another writer. Well, you were in that process of helping your dad and you'd gone to California to, you know, interview him over and over and, and go through all of the these typewritten pages. And at some point you realized you'd actually written your own book in the process <laughs> of helping him on his. So when did you realize that you had a completely different story to tell? Gosh, it, it was a very long process. This has been a very long process. I was young and I was very young. I was 24 when I went out there and I was very naive. And I, in my head, I was like, I know the story. I have this amazing document. This is going to be easy. I'll do it in a year. Um, I, took, I quit my job <laughs> and I went out there and I, and suddenly I was like, this is not easy. This is really hard. Um, the interview process, process with dad was really special. We, I learned so much about him and he about I, and we shared um, a very special few months together together. Uh, and that, at that point, it seemed possible. It was only later when I took the story away and took away all those transcripts um, that I realized what an enormous task it was. Because also, I, you know, I wasn't around in the 60s and 70s. So I was as a very young writer trying to write what is actually a piece of historical autobiography, which I didn't really have the skill set yet for. Um, so I was struggling to make it real and vibrant. And also there was part of me that was getting angry at him as well. 
I felt as I was writing the story where he was the hero of this grand adventure, I felt like it wasn't creating a space for us, for my myself and my siblings and my mum and for our stories and how it hurt us as well. And I needed to tell that. And I felt like if it was making me angry, I couldn't write it properly. Um, and I took it away and I wrote it as a novel first before it became a memoir. Um, I think I was scared to claim the story as my own. Uh, we'd lived in secrecy for so long and I never really told anyone about our lives. So by calling it a novel and giving myself a name as a character, I kind of was keeping it arm's length. And really it was only after writing a novel and five years later that someone was, people would ask me how much of this is true and I would say all of it. And at some point I realized that I needed to call it a memoir and claim the story as my own. And that was an important part of the process of what we were doing. Talk about your parents meeting in, in 1960s New York. Your mom was working for the Ford Modeling Agency. And, and you write that your dad was a rather outsized character even, even then as a young man. Yes. I mean, it's, I, when I think back on their uh, sort of heyday in 1960s New York, this part of me is like, I'll never be as cool as my parents. <laughs> so my mom was a model and she, she'd moved over to work um, and she met my dad when she was 17 and he was 21 and he was working on Wall Street at the time, but he wasn't your typical Wall Street character. At the end of a shift, he would take off his suit and he'd put on a cape and cowboy boots. And when they <laughs> fell in love, they had matching choppers and they'd ride around New York City together on these matching choppers. Mom was just tiny sh- denim shorts and her long blonde hair flowing out behind her and dad with this cape flowing in the wind. Um, having the time of their lives. Uh, and at that point, Dad wasn't in the drug business. It was only later uh, that he started investing in people who were bringing pot in from Miami, coming in from Columbia, and then couriering it over to New York where there was demand. And he would invest in this process. And that, that was the initial point where he began. Um, so his first ever job in the pot business was rolling joints for the Beatles. And they paid him a dollar a joint for every joint he rolled. <laughs> and he stacked them in cigarette packets so they could take them everywhere with them. <laughs> well, what was the turning point when your father realized that he would actually have to pack up his family and live life on the run and actually leave the United States? And talk about how your parents actually rather calmly went over the pros and cons of doing that. So this is sort of fast forwarding 15 years. And dad at this point, his business has grown enormously. He's now bringing in uh, 30 tons of Thai stick straight into the Californian coast and um, has an organization of 20 odd people working with him. Um, and so it's become a major operation. And at this level, he feels pretty immune from from the FBI's attention. He feels that most problems he would be able to deal with with legal fees and contacts and up until then they had got out of every sticky situation they'd found themselves in so when it fell apart i think it was very shocking to him and part of the reason it fell apart is reagan came in and suddenly there was a crackdown on drug traffickers um so dad realized that he was going to go to prison if he stayed in the states and he approached mom he tried as hard as he could to contain the investigation it had gone on for two years and he'd done everything he could and he knew that this was it, this was the crunch point. And he, he raised the idea with mom of, well, we could alternatively go on the run. 
we knew other families who were living in Europe and living happy, full lives uh, with kids. And it didn't seem like a terrible prospect. So they sat down. I think mom probably made herself a cup of tea. She's English after all. And they discussed the pros and cons of it. And I think for her, the idea of having her husband in prison and raising three kids on her own seemed like a far worse idea than trying to go on this European jaunt where we would go live in different countries. And they did think it through because there was no extradition treaty with uh, Portugal. So the idea was to get to Portugal and then live legally from that point onwards. Dad had enough money to last us for the rest of our lives. So as long as he wasn't caught, we could just stay there. Um, and he hoped that maybe after a couple of years, we might all be able to move back to the States and he could make a deal, um, give up some of his money in order for the, the crimes against him to be dropped. That never happened. Well, your family did live in a bunch of different places all throughout Europe before you finally settled in Britain. How did your parents actually explain, because you were little kids, living among other fugitive families, or did you even know they were fugitive families at the time, Tyler? And you ended up with actually some really notorious neighbors along the way, too. So we started off in Rome, and then the idea was we flew to Rome in in our real names, and then Dad was going to season a fake identity in case he were to need it. So at that point, we sort of disappeared. Uh, we then went to Porto de Mami. We went to London. His fake identity was British, so he wanted to season his passport, which is um, developing a, a background for your, your fake identity, like bank accounts and, um, I don't know, library cards or whatever. So he was, he was working on building this identity, and then we moved to Portugal. Um, unfortunately, in Portugal, he discovered that the extradition treaty didn't apply to um drug crimes. So we moved on again and we ended up going to the south of France and in, we were in this little enclave in Mujan and we had Adnan Khashoggi, the um, Saudi Arabian arms dealer on one side of us and we had um, Baby Doc, uh, the Haitian dictator on the other side <laughs> and obviously we didn't actually interact with these people, more you're just aware that they were there and it, it was a, a funny spot uh, where people seemed to find um, a place to retreat from the the, the arms of the, the law, uh, and it was very beautiful and and quite a glamorous uh, part of Europe. And we did know a lot of the other a lot of the other uh, fugitives who had gone on the run, who had been implicated in uh, the same charges against Dad. A lot of them had also settled in the south of France, so we'd found a community where we could feel secure and safe. Well, in hindsight, we can all see things much more clearly, but when you're a kid and it's all you've known, you kind of accept things more easily and just go and do what your parents tell you to do. I mean, I was a military kid and my mom moved 19 times in 18 years of marriage, so I know moving around. Wow. So, Tyler, talk a little bit about your Tyler, talk a little bit about your awareness or not before Scotland Yard showed up at your doorstep when you were only 9 years old that your family's lifestyle was kind of unusual. I really didn't have a clue. I was aware when I told people where I'd lived and how many houses we'd lived in that they would raise an eyebrow and they'd normally ask, are your parents in the military? And I'd say, no, my dad's a businessman, um, as if that explained it. But I did not suspect anything like what we thought was going on because on the day-to-day basis, we lived a happy and, and full family life. We had dinners together. We had to do our homework after school. 
mum and dad separated at some point um, when I was four. And so we would have weekends at dad's and the weeks with mum. And life was ostensibly normal, that is, until Scotland Yard turned up. And it, it was an enormous shock. Well, through all those moves, there were some constants, like your mom's piano and the super king-size bed. Did you yourself have any any rituals or things that you did as a kid to just help you stay grounded through all of that as well, Tyler? I was a very nostalgic kid. I was always looking to the past rather than to the future. And I never wanted to move house. I'd always fall in love with whatever house we were in the moment that we had to leave it behind. So my... My ritual was whenever we moved, I would go back and I'd kiss the letterbox goodbye uh, before we left. And to me, it, it, you know, even to this day, when, I, when I'm being regretful, my, my family still say, your letterbox kissing again. <laughs> <laughs> well, take us to that day. You were nine years old. Scotland Yard shows up at the house. What next, Tyler? So I was nine years old and... We had, me and my sister had come back to the house from school and we'd seen these two strangers through the living room window. And mum had come out to meet us and told us to go stay at a friend's house that night. Um, And we knew even then that there was something amiss about this. And maybe we'd always known in some deep down place. And a week later, mum called us all into her bed and she explained uh, that dad was a fugitive and that we had been on the run for most of our childhood and that Scotland Yard had reappeared in our lives and he had fled the country once more. She didn't tell us what he had done at that point because she felt that that was a conversation that was for him to have when he felt it was the right time. And we also learned to that point that the name we'd been living with uh, was an alias. So I believed myself to be Tyler Kane up until that point. And for me, the hardest thing was that dad had gone. Your father might have evaded capture had he not wanted to stay in contact with you and your siblings. So talk about how things went down when you went to see your dad a few years later in the Caribbean for your 12th birthday. We had started these visits to him wherever he was. And for those years that he was on the run, we would go see him in hiding. And this... By this time, it had been two years of this, and we had assumed that they weren't looking for him. We felt like the attention from Scotland Yard seemed to have subsided, and we felt it was safe to go. And on my 12th birthday, they had been tipped off that he and I always spent my birthday together. And they came to the house, to our home, um, and where mum was, and raided the house looking for us or looking for evidence of where we were. Um, Dad got warning of this, and that night uh, he managed to smuggle us off the island um, before they arrived and away to safety. Mum and Dad always did their best to protect us from what was happening, and they were very, they very much didn't want for us to see Dad arrested because they knew what a trauma that would cause. And then I remember that on that night we said goodbye to Dad. He put us in a taxi and he came halfway with us and then he got out the taxi in this banana field and said goodbye and we didn't know when we'd see him again. We knew everything was falling apart at this stage, that they were on their way, that he might be captured 
And we also knew that with this renewed interest in him, that there, there was no way we could go see him anymore. This was ha- would have to be the end of it. And we waved goodbye to him at the back of the taxi. And I had this really vivid image of him standing in the middle of the road, wearing um, you know, just his swimming shorts and a, and a shirt with his sports bag thrown over his shoulder and feeling this, this great sense of loss that this time was over and I didn't know when I'd see him again. Well, you found yourself packing up and moving quite a bit in your life, which you say is out of habit, but your siblings don't move around as much as you do. So do you envision yourself settling down at some point or, or do you think you're just destined to live your life out of a big red suitcase, Tyler? <laughs> you know, I ask myself that question all of the time. In fact, even just earlier this evening, I was having a conversation with a friend about this. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I am currently living out of a giant suitcase as we speak. Um, and I think it'll be a little while longer that I live like this. It does seem to be some sort of compulsive thing of, of wanting to keep moving and wanting to see more and experience more. And it doesn't carry the weight or heaviness of childhood. There isn't that fear involved. It, it, it's turned into something far more positive. Um, and I'm grateful for that. But I do daydream about owning a home that's mine and having a garden I can walk out barefoot into and growing vegetables and putting down roots. And I, I have to think that that is in my future. Tyler Weatherall is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The book is No Way Home, a memoir of life on the run. Her website, tylerweatherall.com. And I have to ask, is that really your last name? It sounds like a, a play on words, like I've weathered it all. No, that is genuinely my last name. <laughs> that's, that's awesome to have a name like that. Well, thank you so much for being here today on Conversations. Thank you for having me. 